John chapter 14. Good to gather with you all today and right now we're kind of right in the middle of the busyness of Thanksgiving and the coming of Christmas and pretty much this whole season is a a busy season for all of us and so it's nice. I know we have several folks out of town this weekend but it's nice to be able to gather with you all and, and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we celebrate His coming to earth as a as a baby, taking on human flesh to be the Savior of the world. And now we even continue our study in the Gospel of John. We're at the, the end of that human life uh, that Jesus lived. And we have an opportunity to, to consider some things that He taught His disciples uh, from our text today. So hopefully you're in John 14. Our text today begins with verse 25, so you follow along as I read these verses. John 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. In commenting on this section of of John 14, Matthew Henry, the 18th century commentator, makes the analogy of a will. Speaking of a, a will that someone leaves when they, when they die, in their will they leave behind their possessions to those that, that come after them. And he makes this analogy of the will as it relates to Jesus leaving the earth. And he's speaking here to his disciples. And let me read the way he draws out this analogy. And it will help lead us into seeing the things Jesus is leaving in this text. He says this, When Christ was about to leave the world, He made His will. Of course, He's he's speaking, this is an analogy. Jesus did not actually leave a will when He left the earth. This is an analogy. When Christ was about to leave the world, He made His will. His soul He committed to His Father. His body He bequeathed to to Joseph to be decently interred. His clothes fell to the soldiers. His mother he left to the care of John. But what should he leave to his poor disciples that had left all for him? Silver and gold he had none, but he left them that which was infinitely better, 
his peace. And he says so very clearly in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. I believe this is an apt analogy for what Jesus is doing here for his disciples. We've already seen earlier in this chapter on this night, the night of his betrayal, that these disciples are sad. They're deeply troubled about what is going to happen. Not only to Jesus, troubled by what's going to happen to him, but troubled by what that means for them, what's going to happen to them. So they are in a state of great turmoil and unease and discomfort and confusion and a myriad of other emotions and thoughts that are going through their head. But in these last words that Jesus gives to his disciples, he leaves them with two gifts, really, that they are going to receive upon his departure. One has already been dealt with and and continues in this section. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gifts, promises the gift of His Holy Spirit to His disciples when He departs. Then that second gift that He leaves with them is, is that which is referenced in verse 27. He leaves them with peace. My peace. And how comforting perhaps more so for us now than it maybe was for them in the moment. But of, of all that they needed in that, in that hour of confusion and doubt and fear was they needed the peace of Christ. And He promised to give them that. And we're going to explore that in a little while. But first, I want us to look at the first gift that He mentions, and that is the Holy Spirit. We're going to see specifically the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verses 25 and 26. It says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I said this, he is continuing to draw out this gift that he is leaving with his disciples of the Holy Spirit. He's already mentioned the coming of the Holy Spirit earlier. And he will do so throughout this farewell discourse. We're going to see Jesus promise the Holy Spirit who will come and be with them. He will be with them forever. Saw that earlier in chapter 14. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to come and bear witness about Him, about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And finally, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. These are all aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises. That when when Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit will come and He will accomplish all of these things. Specifically, in this section in these verses the teaching ministry the 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 ministry of illumination upon the disciples is the aspect of the holy spirit's ministry that is featured in this part of jesus teaching his promise to them this teaching ministry of the holy spirit that's what he tells them verse 26 he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance what is this talking about 
It's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to come and teach the disciples as they write the Scriptures. Now at this point in time, the disciples don't understand that. They don't know that they are, in the next few decades, going to be responsible for writing down the basis of what the church will study and learn of of Christ and obey for centuries to come. All they're thinking at this moment is, Jesus is leaving, what are we going to do? And yet Jesus promises the Holy Spirit who will come and teach them. And what Jesus knows and what the disciples will soon find out is that they will be used by God through the power and, and ministry of the Holy Spirit to write what we have as the New Testament Scriptures. You see, the disciples often misunderstood the things that Jesus did and taught. I mean, most everybody that lived during the time of Jesus that heard him preach and saw his works misunderstood the things that he was saying, misunderstood what he was doing. And the same was true of the disciples. They often didn't fully understand what he was doing, what he was saying. I mean, their, their, their fear, even on this night, demonstrates that they have not yet fully understand, un- understood what Jesus is all about, what he is doing, what he has said to them. And we often point to the resurrection as the turning point in their understanding. I know I often think this way. That yes, here in John 14, they're fearful and confused and uncertain. But once Jesus is raised from the dead, it all makes sense, right? I mean, that's, that's the way that I know I have thought. And maybe perhaps you have. That the resurrection made all the difference in the disciples' understanding. I think... In a big way, it did make the difference. I mean, they they certainly understood a a lot more of what Jesus had been talking about once Jesus was raised from the dead. A lot of things made a lot more sense at that point. But I think to to limit our understanding of the resurrection being the turning point in the disciples' understanding, I think it's more accurate to say, and I think we can draw it out of this, promise from Jesus is that the coming of the Holy Spirit to teach them and illumine their minds and hearts to what Jesus had had said and done, that was the turning point that changed the disciples from being fearful men cowering in a room, fleeing, denying, to being those who stood up on the day of Pentecost, being filled with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I say more significant than the resurrection of Jesus and clarifying Jesus' ministry to the disciples was the coming of the Holy Spirit to teach them, to bring all things to their remembrance, the things Jesus had had taught and done. And it began on that day of Pentecost when they began to preach the gospel and it continued as they wrote down even as John writes down his recollection of of Jesus' life and ministry. This was the Holy Spirit's work that Jesus promised. These men would write down with clarity. They would would understand and be able to communicate the truths that at this point they they were unsure of, they were confused about. So the, the Holy Spirit taught the disciples as they would eventually write the Scriptures. 
Then we take that one step further because the immediate audience here, so the disciples are the ones that immediately benefited from this teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. But that also extends to us who have the things that they have written down under inspiration of the Holy, Holy Spirit. And as we consider the fact that the Spirit also teaches us as we read the Scriptures, we consider our access to the Word of God, we can think of reading the Bible in the same way that the disciples heard the words of Jesus. You see, just as the disciples needed the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand what Jesus had been talking about and what Jesus had done, so we also need the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand the things that they have written. Think about how many people have read either all or portions of the Bible and yet how many people truly understand and believe what the Bible says. There are many, many people that know Scripture, that have read Scripture, and yet have no understanding of it, that do not believe it. The turning point comes, just as it did with the disciples, the turning point for us comes with the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that here in a second. But I also want to make a couple of the observations from this promise that Jesus gives as it relates to what the disciples are going to receive when they receive the Spirit and His illumination. We observe that the illumination of the Holy Spirit that He is going to give to these disciples is centered on the work of Jesus. When Jesus says that the Father will send the Spirit in My name, in Jesus' name, what He means is that the Holy Spirit comes as Jesus' ambassador to advance His cause. So where Jesus comes to the earth, lives a perfect life, and dies in the place of sinners, it's now the Spirit that will come as Jesus' ambassador. The Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name to advance the cause of Jesus in a way far more extensive than Jesus could ever have hoped to do in His earthly life. Jesus' mission to the earth was misunderstood by virtually everyone. We've seen that in our study of the Gospel of John. Many, many people misunderstood what Jesus was doing. Refused to believe what He was doing. And yet, when we read the book of Acts, when the Spirit comes, the message of the Gospel, the fruits of the Gospel, expand to the ends of the earth at that point. It explodes. The growth of the church explodes through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. As those these men write down the Scriptures, as they preach the truth, the Spirit is changing lives. He is is giving eyes of faith, perhaps even to some of the same ones that we read about earlier in John that, that did not believe. Following the Spirit's coming and enabling the disciples or the apostles as they became known. Hearts were changed. Blind eyes were made to see. And the advance of the kingdom of Christ 
grew at a furious rate. The illumination of the Holy Spirit was centered on the work of Christ. And also the illumination of the Holy Spirit was rooted in revealed truth. Notice how Jesus qualifies the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The work of the Spirit was not to come and provide a bunch of new revelation to these disciples. Although He did, he did some of that. But primarily, the teaching ministry of, of the Holy Spirit was to remind the disciples of the things Jesus had said and done. We've talked previously about the state of mind of these disciples on this night. And really, through their entire life with Christ. They were, they were confused. They, they didn't fully understand what He said. They were taking all of this information in. They were hearing all of this teaching that Jesus was giving, and yet they didn't have the ability to fully process everything He was saying. And so it was the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and His teaching them. It was rooted in the things that Jesus had already taught them. It was, it was clarifying the things that Jesus had taught so that they could communicate that to others. The work of the Spirit was to affirm what had already been revealed, to give clarity and understanding where previously there had been confusion and uncertainty. So the Spirit was to come to teach, to illuminate the hearts of the minds, the eyes of, of these disciples. I want to bring this to address our hearts as we approach the Bible that we hold in our hands. Because I think understanding these things, understanding this ministry of the Holy Spirit ought to change our attitude toward our Bible. You see, the Word of God that we have been given that we hold in our hands, in our laps today, that we carry around with us, that Word of God that we've been given by the Holy Spirit, these are the words that the Spirit gave through these men to us. This book that we have is better than having Jesus by our side as the disciples did. What we have in our hand is, is more valuable to us than it was to sit in the upper room with Jesus on this night or to sit anywhere with Jesus as the disciples had. What we have in our hands is, is of more benefit than what the disciples had with the, the intimate presence of Jesus with them. Perhaps you are puzzled by that. Perhaps you, you think that well, that can't be true. I mean, what, what would be more valuable than being able to sit at a table with Jesus and have Him teach? So we might understand the, the thoughts, the heart of Jesus. And I think to answer that question, we, we look no further than what actually happened in real life when Jesus was here. Even those closest to Him didn't always understand what He was talking about. 
They needed the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And we, by the grace of God, have received the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We have received the product of the teaching that the Spirit gave to these disciples so that what we have in our hands is more valuable than even the presence of of Jesus sitting with us, talking with us. The Bible is a gift that we have received from God. The Bible is the source of all wisdom and instruction that we need. It contains everything that we need for life and godliness. As Paul writes, it's God-breathed and it's profitable for, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible is the source of all that we need. And oftentimes, however, we find ourselves saying that it doesn't seem like I'm getting much out of my Bible reading. I'm sure every one of us in this room at one time or another has said that or felt that. Read my Bible, but I'm just not getting much from it. And I think that that sentiment is a testimony to the fact that we often approach the Scripture disconnected from the necessity of the Holy Spirit's ministry in giving us that Scripture. Let me explain that. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit in order to understand and comprehend the Word of God. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned this earlier, that there are a vast multitude of people who have read the Bible, who are familiar with the the teaching of the Bible, and yet have no understanding truly of what the Scripture says. The difference is made through the the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so we, when we say that I'm not getting anything out of my Scripture reading, I think the good diagnostic question to ask ourselves is, are we coming to the Word of God in dependence upon the Scripture to give us illumination? Or do we just sit down and open it like we would read any other book and just start reading? Have we, have we prepared our hearts and our minds to have them opened by the Spirit to the Word of God? I was thinking about this as this year I've been doing a Bible reading plan and it's the way I have it printed out to follow along. It's a checklist and so I'm able to check off each reading that I do. And I was thinking this week, so I'm actually, praise God, up to date um, right now, so every, all the the boxes up to this point are filled in. But I, I thought, I mean, if if I were to only check the boxes on the days that I actually prepared my heart to to receive the Word of God that day as I read it, how many boxes would actually be filled? A lot fewer than there are now. I'll say that much. So understanding that. Jesus promises the Spirit to come and to teach His disciples who would in turn write the Scriptures, record by the Spirit. Now we have, we have what they've written. We have the Spirit indwelling us. And yet we cut ourselves off from it by ignoring this illumination ministry of the Spirit in our hearts. 
And so when we approach the Word of God, come to it in, with dependence upon the Spirit, a recognition that we need the Spirit to give us understanding. And so Jesus leaves His disciples with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In particular, the, the teaching and illumination that He will bring for them. And the second thing that He leaves with them is the peace of Christ. Verse 27, He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. When Jesus promises here to give His peace to His disciples, He is he is promising something truly remarkable. You see, peace is one of the great hopes of all humanity. In fact, I think, Tim, you referenced that even a while ago as we were preparing to sing a song. During this Christmas season and as we get into the new year, what you hear more often than anything else is, is the desire of, of our world that there, is, there would be peace. There would be peace on earth. If only we could have peace. This is the great hope of humanity. Peace. And yet, our world is full of conflicts and wars. And yet, the, per, the pursuit of peace dominates the agenda of world leaders. With, with conference after conference and summit after summit, trying to figure out how can we get peace. And yet, all of those meetings, all of those efforts ultimately fail. Our world is a wor world full of conflict and war. The problem is that no one quite knows how to accomplish lasting peace. And yet here Jesus promises His disciples, as I leave, I leave you my peace. And the peace that he is referring to here. The peace that He is promising them is not worldwide peace. He is not promising them that all nations will forever be at peace with one another. He's not promising that there is going to be an absence of conflict and difficulty and trouble. See, the peace that the world gives, that Jesus contrasts His peace with here in this verse, the peace that He's giving is not as the world gives. The peace that the world gives, or I would say the peace that the world promises to give, because it usually doesn't deliver. The peace that the world gives is nothing more than a mirage. It's something we can, we can see out there. It's a goal that we can, we can see. We can even describe what it looks like. And this promise of hope from the world is a mirage. It's an illusion of hope. But in reality, as we approach it, it has no reality or substance. We find out that all of the promises for peace are, are empty. That's the peace of the world. In contrast to that, the peace that Jesus promises to give is a supernatural peace in the midst of trouble. It's not the absence of trouble. It's peace in the midst of trouble. 
This piece is the ground of his exhortation to them at the end of verse 27. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. The peace of Christ does not bring or eradicate, rather, the the presence of, of difficulty and trouble and conflict. But rather, the peace of Christ reigns even in the midst of trouble and difficulty. We can better understand how this works as we observe the rest of what Jesus tells His disciples here. So He promises to leave them His peace. How is it that the peace of Christ reigns even in the midst of trouble? Well, it's by connecting the peace of Christ with these last things that He tells them in this chapter. First, I want us to see the peace of Christ and the joy of His glory. Look at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. Referencing what he said earlier in chapter 14. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So it's here that he reveals to his disciples that their response to his departure of sadness and troubled hearts is evidence that they have not fully grasped truly who he is and what he, what he is about to do. See, he tells them that if they truly loved him, their response would be quite different than it actually was. If they truly loved him, their response to his departure would be joy rather than fear. This kind of seems like a foolish thing for him to say, especially to these disciples that are troubled. If you really loved me, you would, you would actually be glad. You would, you would be rejoicing right now. Because the reality is when we truly love someone, we desire their presence with us, Right? When we truly love some, we're sad when they leave. This is why when families gather at these holiday seasons, there's much joy and excitement when the family comes together and then when the family departs, there's sadness and tears. That's the way it works when we love each other. We want to be around each other. We're sad to see one another depart from our presence when we truly love. So how is it that Jesus is able to tell his disciples that if you had loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going away? This statement to to them is rooted in the fact that Jesus has been out of place during his earthly ministry. Jesus has been out of place. As he has been living among them for three plus years, he has been out of place. When he leaves this earth, he will return to the Father who Jesus says is greater than I. In what sense is the Father greater than Jesus? In what sense is God the Father greater than God the Son? The 
First, the easy answer. It's, it's not that God the Father is somehow more God than God the Son. Some teach that. The answer is found, I believe, in Paul's words about what Jesus laid aside when he came to earth. In Philippians 2, when he writes in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Father is greater than the Son during the earthly ministry of the Son because the full display of the Son's glory has been veiled. Mankind has not been able to see the the fullness of the glory of God the Son as He has been clothed in humanity. But He will soon be returning to His Father. He will soon be returning to the right hand of God the Father. And He will take His place there. and, And it's a place that He occupies even now and is receiving the worship of those who surround Him in the heavenly realm. You see, Jesus was out of place in a sense when He came to this earth. And Jesus, when He returned, when He left this earth and returned to His Father's side in heaven, returned to His rightful place, His home, the place where the fullness of of His glory is visible and recognized and affirmed and He's worshipped because of the the fullness of His, His deity. What Jesus is telling them is that true love for Him would have rejoiced at His departure because He was leaving the lowliness of the earth and going to the rightful place of glory where He belonged. Our love for Jesus ought to be rooted in the glory that He now enjoys in heaven. Our love for Jesus ought to be rooted in the place of glory that He now occupies. I was reminded of this as I was recently reading in Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is a one of the more well-known passages in the book of Revelation. It clearly displays the glory of Christ. And even there it's presented alongside the sadness of John. When John recognizes that there is no one worthy to open the scroll. And yet in Revelation 5 he sees one like a lamb having been slain. The lion of the tribe of Judah who is worthy to open that scroll. And John sees the scene of the heavenly praise of of Jesus Christ because He has conquered. And even John, when when he saw these visions in the book of Revelation, was was struck. He was he was he responded in, in many cases as as one who is a dead man. You see, John didn't see the carpenter that walked 
next to him for three years, the one he sat next to at this meal. Instead, he saw the one that had made the universe with the word of his mouth. The one who ruled over all things. What John saw was not the friend that stood beside him for for many years. But he saw the Lord of all. He saw the, the worship that those who understood that give him. See, Jesus is not just our our buddy that we bring along to sanctify our our pursuits in life. He is the one who we love by worshiping and obeying. To say it another way, Jesus does not exist to serve our ends. Jesus does not exist to, to do the things we desire Him to do. Instead, we exist to serve His ends. We exist to worship Him and obey Him, to reflect His glory to those who are watching. And so to truly love Jesus is to rejoice in the glory that He receives and enjoys. Also the peace of Christ from this text, the peace of Christ and the necessity of faith. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. As I've mentioned, there's much that the disciples did not fully believe about Jesus. But by making this promise to his disciples, he is extending their sight beyond the present moment. The present moment where their their faith is wavering. He sets their sight on the coming day when they would see the fulfillment of all that He had, had taught them. And that when they when they see that, they would respond in faith. Jesus is is pointing them, although that they don't get this at this point. Jesus is pointing them ahead to a time where they will they will believe the things that he has said and taught. And I think one of those things is the resurrection. He has promised that he would rise again. And certainly when that happens it leads to faith. It led them to faith believing the things that he had said, believing that he was who he claimed to be. This takes us back to the purpose for which God, uh, for which John gave for writing his gospel. That he states clearly at the end, he writes these things so that we would believe in Jesus. Access to the peace that Jesus gives, this, this peace of Christ that reigns in the midst of trouble, the only way to access this peace is through faith in Jesus as the Prince of Peace. It's a recognition that Jesus accomplished something for us by removing the greatest obstacle to our peace. The greatest obstacle to our peace is not a military enemy. 
or a political enemy or another religious system. The greatest obstacle to our peace is the sin that holds us in bondage. Jesus came and through His death removed that obstacle. Freeing from bondage to sin all those who come to faith in His work for them. The peace of Christ is accessed through faith. Then I want us to observe the peace of Christ and the power of His sovereignty. The peace of Christ and the power of His sovereignty. Look at verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus continues to teach his disciples here what is going on as he leaves them. Here he tells them that one of the reasons he will be gone is because the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world, the devil, Satan, the great enemy, he's coming. At that very moment, when Jesus was speaking these words to his disciples, the devil was busy working in the heart of Judas, in the hearts of the Jewish leaders, to bring about a betrayal and a trial and a crucifixion, to put Jesus to death. And it wouldn't be long before their plans were fulfilled and and Jesus would be delivered over for that trial. He would be delivered over to the cross. Despite all that lay ahead for Jesus and His disciples, He wanted them to understand that things were not out of His control. In fact, all the plotting being done was according to the plan and purpose of His Father. And it's the very end for which He came into the world. Look at these verses again. I will no longer talk much with you. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The ruler of this world has no claim on Jesus. Instead, I do as the Father has commanded me. What Jesus is telling His disciples that in a a matter of hours. I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be betrayed by Judas, delivered over to the Jewish leaders. That's not because the the enemy has control over what I do. It's because I have come and I, I do what the Father has commanded me to do. Everything that is happening is under the control of my Father. Nothing is out of control. Since Jesus was not of this world, the ruler of this world had no claim on him. So what that would look like is that as Jesus shortly will enter a garden, in fact, the end of verse 31, he he says, rise, let us go from here. He will make their way to the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus will enter that garden the place that he will be met by the forces of Satan in that hour. But he will not be overcome by that enemy 
as Adam and Eve had been overcome by the enemy when they met him in the garden. But he, as the last Adam, will fulfill God's promise to Adam and he will in that hour crush the head of the serpent. The peace of Christ rules because Christ sovereignly rules over all things. The reason there can be peace in the midst of trouble and chaos because from God's perspective, there is no chaos. It's all under His control. We often think of Satan as a sort of boogeyman that we're supposed to be afraid of. He's the source of all evil, right? So everything, everything bad that is happening, it's the devil. Every time I fall into sin, it's because the devil tempted me. We're tempted to fear the devil and put him in this place of, to elevate him to this place of, of having power over us. But what Jesus' words here help us realize is that while Satan is our enemy, he is an enemy that has already been defeated. Not only has he been defeated, but he is under the control of God. So whatever the devil is doing right now in, in the world, whatever the devil is doing right now in your life, it's fully under God's control. Yes, we must be aware that, as Peter will later write, the devil is a roaring lion, prowling around seeking someone to devour. And that's true. And, and Peter calls us there to be sober-minded, to be vigilant, to pay attention, to watch out. But that's the response. It's attention and vigilance, not fear and anxiety. In fact, in that same passage, Peter calls upon his readers to cast your anxieties upon the Lord. You see, as a defeated enemy, when we are in Christ, who has defeated that enemy, the ruler of this world has no claim over us as well. Instead, we battle against an enemy in the strength of the Spirit, the same Spirit that came, that, that Jesus promised would come and, and bring illumination to our hearts and minds. He also comes to bring power and victory over the enemy. We battle knowing that the Spirit is able to give us experiential victory over the devil and all of his devices against us. We have the gifts, just as the disciples did, of the Holy Spirit who, who teaches us. He also brings the peace of Christ to our hearts. My prayer for us is that we would take seriously the necessity that we have of, of the Spirit's illumination in our hearts. And also take seriously the promise of the peace of Christ reigning in our hearts. That this would be a season where we would experience the joy of, of knowing victory in the, in the power of the Spirit. Being encouraged and strengthened with hope and rejoicing rather than being 
anxious and fearful. Father, we thank You for the great hope that we have in Christ. And we know that these are not just words that Jesus spoke with the best intentions, but they are words of of truth that He would validate when He went to the cross. And we thank You for the presence of the Spirit with us. I pray that we would fully grasp what He means to us. That we would approach our reading of Your Word with expectation that the Spirit is going to teach us. And we pray that By the Spirit, You would enable us, having recognized Your sovereign control over all things and the glory that You enjoy, that we would by faith experience the power of the Holy Spirit to bring peace to our hearts. Even when everything around us is swirling around in chaos that we would rest in Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.